If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up uh, to Luke chapter 3. Luke 3, we're going to kind of pick up this morning, uh, because really it's it's a continuation of the scene we ended in uh, last week. And and as much as I wanted to get us a few verses ahead uh, so that we could start cleanly in chapter 4, I I also did not want to rush what I felt the Holy Spirit was kind of presenting to us. Uh, and put it in front of us. If you'll remember, uh, the the scene we for last week opened uh, with a black screen, and it just said 30 years later. Uh, and as that dissolves, what we find uh, is a desert wilderness kind of place where you have John the Baptist uh, who comes into focus as he's proclaiming a baptism of of repentance for the forgiveness of of sins and. And his message is a serious warning uh, because he says, here's the thing, you can't ride into heaven on the coattails of those who are saved. You can't do it. So he says, he says, each and every one of us will have to give account uh, for sin and our relationship with the judge will determine the outcome of our eternity. And, And so John calls us to repentance. And we said that we just very simply defined it. I don't know if that was fair to do, uh, but we did it anyways, right? And we said, we said repentance is simply, it's a change of mind, it's a change of heart, and it's a change of, of direction. And, and really, that change is from sin toward God. And then, then he adds how our lives should produce fruit in keeping with uh, repentance, and, and that, that we would be a people changed by the good news of the gospel. It's just evidence of the, the change that, that Jesus has made. And so, of course, this is all paraphrased uh, from the conversations that he, he has with the crowds as they ask him what they shall do. And then as, as John sounds as brilliant as he actually is, uh, the people start to wonder, is he the Christ? Uh, is he the one that, that we've been waiting for? To which John answers this in uh, uh, Luke 3, verse 16. He says, he says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. And he says, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then verse 17 brings us a warning that we, we had to kind of deal with, right? And prayerfully, we dealt with it this week. Um, that he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his uh, threshing floor to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn uh, with unquenchable fire. That there are two destinations of our lives. Either we are found in Jesus or we are not. Uh, and if we are found in Jesus, we are gathered like wheat. And if we are not, we are burned like, like chaff. And so, so what we said last week is, is how... Um, I, I warned you that uh, there's going to be a change in the, the focus, right? Uh, where... We're all along in these early chapters, we kind of bounced on an episode-to-episode moment. Like, we'll have an episode with John the Baptist, and then we'll have an episode with Jesus. Uh, what's about to happen, beginning today, is that focus is going to shift dramatically. In fact, uh, John is going to exit stage left, and we're not going to hear for, about him, really, for uh, about another three or four chapters. And w- even when we do, it won't be very much, because what, Je- what John is going to end up doing in chapter 7 is really just help us see Jesus more clearly. Uh, and so, so now the focus is going to be solely on, on Jesus. And, 
And this begins this morning really in in three sections for how God proclaims the importance of how Jesus comes to us as the son of God. Uh, that's going to be our that's going to be our focus. Right. Is Jesus the son of God? And God is going to say yes. OK. So as we pray here, if you want to sneak out, you already know the big the big point. OK. All right. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you. For your love and we thank you for your word and I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through your word this morning that he would he would bind our mouths he would he would open our eyes he would he would soften our hearts to see more clearly who we are because of your son we thank you for this and we we lay these requests at your feet in eager expectation it's in Jesus name we pray and everyone said amen all right, so so we're gonna we're gonna pair these verses, this passage together, uh, in a way that I've, I've never done before, and I don't know if I've ever seen it done before. Okay, um, and in fact, I think uh, chapter four, the beginning of chapter four, is rarely uh, paired with the end of chapter three. Um, but but we're gonna go this route because of what's said in verse twenty-two and what's said in verse thirty-eight, and then the conversation uh, that that in chapter four that the devil has with Jesus in, in the wilderness. And so, so let's remember why Luke writes this account. Why does Luke write this gospel? And it takes us way back to chapter one, verse four, where he says his intention is to write to Theophilus. And by extension, we get to experience this. Uh, he writes to Theophilus um, what he would have that he would know certainly concerning the things that, that they've been taught. Uh, so, so if you say, I believe Jesus is the son of God, um, can I, uh, so I'm sorry, we're going to come in and we're going to talk about Jesus being the son of God. And if you say, I believe that already, right, can I just go ahead and go pick up my Walmart order? I'm telling you, I don't think you need to, because there's one thing to know this and there's one thing to believe this. And then I think there's another category that you live in it. Okay? And you allow that to change you from, from the inside out. And so I would encourage you to stay engaged uh, because knowing why Jesus is sent as the Son of God will help us see Jesus more clearly. That, that God would have us uh, be able to live with certainty. That's what Luke wants us to know. I want you to walk in certainty to know who Jesus is. Uh, and so God would have that for us in his word, specifically as we talk about the relationship that he has with Jesus and what's available to us as a result. And so so our approach this morning, it's not going to be balanced. We're going to be in three sections, but we're going to spend a majority of our time in, in section three. Uh, but before we get there, let's let's pick it up in verse 18, chapter three. OK, first section. So John has been baptizing people. Right. And so it says this. So with many other exhortations, he being John. Preach good news to the people, okay? So, so even when John says, hey, you need to repent of your sins, this is still labeled as good news because it actually is, okay? So he preached good news to the people, verse 19, but Herod, the Tetrarch, right, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, uh, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. Okay, so so John is about to exit 
uh, stage left. And, but while he, before he does that, there's something we can learn about his persevering witness as, as a faithful follower of God. Uh, and so we're going to see this very quickly. Three things. That John will remain faithful with the gospel itself. Right? It says that, that he would continue to exhort and preach good news to the people. Number two, John remains faithful no matter the audience. Okay, so he comes in and he speaks the same repentance, the same words of repentance that he speaks to the tax collector, he speaks to Herod. And he says, Herod, your heart's not right. Uh, in fact, what he's doing uh, with Herodias, his brother's wife, he calls out openly. Uh, and then uh, if you ever know, if you ever want to know where the, the phrase, I want your head on a silver platter, um, John's story is, is the reason why we see that. Okay, because there's a, there's a day when, when Herod will ask uh, the daughter of Herodias, what do you want? I'll give you whatever. And they say, I want his head on a, a platter. And so, so no matter the audience, the truth of the gospel doesn't change. Okay, he doesn't bend the message to suit the itching ears of his hearers. And then, then number three, John remains faithful no matter the cost. No matter. For preaching the gospel, calling out sin for being sin, Herod, uh, when he calls Herod out, uh, tells him, hey, you need to repent. And he says, I'm not going to compromise on this. John finds himself locked up in prison. And now before long, Jared, uh, I'm sorry, Herod will have uh, John beheaded. And it gives us this, this case study for, for regarding the cost of discipleship and helping us understand that you can be righteous and still experience suffering okay so any other message of the gospel that says because you're saved everything should be rosy um it's not accurate could be but it's not solely the way it is for everybody uh, hebrews will tell us that some people get to kingdoms and some people get to swords and both of them honor god with their life and so so even in these moments before his death we're going to see again Way in chapter 7, which I think we'll get to at some point, maybe in our life, we'll find out. Um, that, that the role that John plays in our life to help us understand Jesus. And so, so, so to bear fruitful witness about Jesus requires us to be careful with the message of the gospel. Requires us to, to lovingly be confrontational with the people who hear it. And it requires us to pay the cost that Christ may call us to pay. And now what happens is the focus begins to shift. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven, right? You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Okay, I think that is so difficult for us to see. I think it's so incredibly difficult for us to get our, our minds around the magnitude and the beauty of this moment. Uh, so, so Jesus submits himself to baptism. And I think sometimes people will wonder, why would Jesus need to be baptized if he had not sinned? Because isn't baptism just a, an outward expression of an inward change? That I've, I've turned my life of sin uh, and I've turned, turned from my life of sin and I've turned 
toward God. So so why would Jesus, if he's never sinned, why would he need to be baptized? That's an excellent question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, so so Luke doesn't give us this insight, but Matthew chapter three, verse 15 will explain uh, that that Jesus will explain to John that he must be baptized because this is the way to fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus comes into the world to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. So so we have broken all of those righteous requirements. And so so here Jesus stands in our place, not just as our sin bearer, but also as our righteousness. And it's incredibly important that he does so. And then John, in chapter 1, verse 29, uh, also records the baptism of, the, of our Lord. And Jesus participates in this baptism so that he might be revealed to Israel. Uh, and so he submits partly in order to demonstrate to Israel that he is the Savior uh, that, that they were waiting for. No, at no other time do we find in recorded history the voice of God coming down after a baptism saying, Hey, this is my son. And the crowds will walk away from that and be like, I don't know. And so so he submits and partly to dis- demonstrate to Israel that he is their Messiah, and which is affirmed by the descending spirit, the voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son with you. I am pleased. And now. That line in and of itself. Is incredibly important and relevant to us. Because if God is pleased with his son, that's good news for those who are found in his son. Because what this means is that if you are in Christ by faith, you also have a father who is in heaven who is pleased with you. That's the Bible. That the father looks at the faithful and he sees his son. That's the way this works. All the son has done to please the father has become ours through our union with Jesus through faith in him. And so so that's that's why Christians have every right to fight those nagging doubts and to fight those nagging whispers that come along sometimes to suggest that God doesn't like you anymore. Right. He's not like he's not like our 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 earthly parents or if you are a parent, I think you can identify to this that. That you come in and you say, you know, I love you, but I don't know if I like you right now, right? That's a very humanistic way of doing relationships. And so what we find in the Bible, that because of the role of Jesus, when he sees us, he sees his son. And there's not a moment that the father ever looks at the son and says, you know, I love you because I have to, but I don't really like you right now. Okay? And if we as a people could walk in that beautiful truth, Imagine the freedoms we would have. Imagine the celebration that could take place in our hearts because we know that we are his. We know he is, we are under his protection. We know we are under his guidance. We know that, that we are just simply under his singing over us. So if we made the choice of, of repenting of our sins and coming to God, we can expect to hear blessing from God, not condemnation. That, that we don't have to shudder and cower or for fear of a harsh word of rebuke from God because he gave us the rebuke so that we could turn away from sin. The most unloving thing God can do in our lives is to say, you know, let's just condone that sin and wash it under the rug. The most unloving thing. So we can enjoy, so what we can 
joyfully and in confidently expect to hear now that we are, if we are in Christ, are words similar to those spoken here, that I am pleased with you because of Christ. And everything else about our lives become a response to his incredible love. It's what it is. And so, so let's, let's move to the second section, okay? So, so we're not going to read all of verses 23 through 38 because there's a lot of names in there that would be just embarrassing uh, for me to attempt to read to you. Um, but, but know this. Here's, here's what's presented. It's a genealogy that links Jesus all the way back to God as Father. It's what it does. In fact, I, I don't want to bog us down in riveting genealogy talk, uh, but... But Matthew opens with a genealogy, and what he does is he kind of traces the royal family succession of Jesus' lineage. Uh, And then what Luke does is he traces Joseph's actual physical line. Uh, That's why, uh, because of how many generations take place in Joseph, like the first half, the most recent half, at the beginning of this genealogy, like we don't know these people because largely the Bible is quiet for about 400 years, remember? Uh, in fact, we'll, we'll spend some time in Malachi in the next coming weeks. But once Malachi, the prophet, ends his um, speaking from God, it's silent for 400 years. And so you have in this genealogy, I'm sorry, I told you we weren't going to get into riveting genealogy talk, but hey, I'm a dork, so here's what you get. All right? So that's why uh, this first half, you're like, I don't know any of these people uh, because God is silent in this time until John the Baptist comes as a voice speaking out of the wilderness. And then you get about midway through this genealogy, and you're like, oh, I've heard of that guy, David. <laughs> and then we work it all the way back, and, and this is where I want our focus to end, really, on, in verse 38. Okay, It says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay, It's incredibly important that we would see this. Because, again, the purpose of Luke's writing is, is to provide an orderly sequence so that we may know with certainty the things about which we have been instructed. And so, so I think Luke's intention here is to show the family tree, but I, but I also don't think it's a coincidence that he makes this connection with the first Adam being the son of God. And now we have the last Adam or, or the second Adam as being the son of God. Okay, so, so, so the first Adam uh, in, in Genesis, right, uh, his fall brought with it sin that leads to death, leaving us in need of rescue, leaving us in need of, of a Savior. So, so Christ came not merely to restore us uh, to what we were before Adam's fall, but to give us something better. So, so as the last Adam, right, Christ restores what was lost and guarantees that we will never lose it again. Never. Never, never, never. And so, so he gives us this perfect righteousness and is now conforming us into his image, as, as Paul would tell us in the book of Romans. And so, so a few times here, we see God confirming or validating who Jesus is. And we're only going to be four chapters into this Gospel of Luke, right? So, so what we've seen is first he prophesies in the opening chapters about who Jesus is, and then with his voice, in case you weren't believing that prophecy, with his voice in verse 22, he declares who Jesus is as his son, and now he proves this link in this genealogy ending in verse 38, and and I stress this because I want you to pay careful attention 
to the way the devil tries to attack Jesus. Okay? I want you, I want you to pay very careful attention. And if you don't see it, don't worry. I'm going to point it out to you. Because it's incredibly important. There's a theme that is developing, right? This is why we've paired these two sections together. Is Jesus the Son of God? And God has said over and over again so far in these chapters, He is my Son. He is my Son. He is my Son. Now watch what the devil does here. Chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Okay, that's where he goes. For 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Like, that might be the most obvious truth that Luke will ever describe, right? At the end of those 40 days, he could have a hamburger. He could eat. Verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God. Okay, if you like to mark up your Bible, this is a good one. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Verse 5, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. That's, that's crazy, right? In a moment of time. And said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Then he says this in verse 7, you can underline these words. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Verse 9, and he took him up to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, we haven't seen the theme developing, let's see it right here, underline these words, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, okay, so now Satan's coming in with some Bible talk, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And then Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then watch how this theme fizzles. Like just in a whimper. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So he just lurked back into the darkness where he, be, where he began. So the main issue at stake in this temptation is the identity of Jesus. Right? And this is, this is what Satan is trying to convince Jesus of. Are you really the son of God? Now what does God say? You, you, you're my son. You're my son. And Satan comes in, and he just, he doesn't say, you aren't the son of God. He just says, if you are. If you are. And so, so in verse 3, Satan comes to Jesus and says, if you are the son of God. Again in verse 9, he says, if you are the son of God. And the pressing issue in this passage is this question, who is Jesus? And this is important for us for many reasons. Because the immediate context of this temptation 
harks us back to other times and other people who were previously called the Son of God. Right? Uh, Adam receives mention in three, chapter 3, verse 38 as the Son of God. And if you'll recall from his time in Genesis, uh, that, that Satan's temptation of Adam in the garden where Adam failed the test, now Jesus is presented to us as the second and the last Adam who won't. This passage harks us back to places like Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1 where, where God calls Israel his child and he declares that out of Egypt I called my son, uh, referring to Israel, uh, but then the prophecy being fulfilled out of, and when Jesus is there, but again, that's, there's so much you can talk about in this scene, but we're not going to. Focus, Mark, all right? Because in verse 2, what happens is once God had delivered his people from bondage, they entered the wilderness where they worshipped bells and idols rather than God. And so Israel, too, after being called the children of God, failed to be God's perfect son. And their wilderness temptation lurks in the background of Luke chapter 4. But here we're finally presented with God's true son, the true Israel, which is the Christ. So just as Adam had his garden of temptation, Jesus has his wilderness of temptation. And everything God has affirmed, Satan tries to negate. Okay? That's just a lesson for life. Every single thing that God has affirmed, Satan will try to negate. And he'll come in, and at times he will give false accusations, and other times he'll take what is true, and he'll want to twist it in a way that by twisting it, takes you in a destination that, that leads you so far away from the Father. And it's so incredibly unnecessary. So God calls Jesus his son, produces the paternity test to prove it, right? In like the best sort of Moripovic style, right? And Satan shows up to doubt and dispute it, and he attempts to seize upon our Lord's human weakness. So verse 2 says that he ate nothing, and during those times, during those days, when they were over, he was hungry. And for at least three times, I think there's a case to be made that for those 40 days, he is just being bombarded. Because what we find when we work in, when we work in the full counsel of the word of God is that it says he was tempted in every way and yet was without fault. So there, there are three temptations mentioned here, and, and I think they're easy for us to identify with. If we say, well, I've experienced that. Because the first thing he does is the devil comes in and he tempts Jesus with provision. Right? He says, says if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And then Jesus responds uh, with Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone. Number two, the devil tempts Jesus with power. He takes him, shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said, I'll give this all to you. In fact, I will give you all this authority and I will give you their glory. Isn't that strange? And he says, all you got to do is worship me and it'll be yours. And Jesus responds, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And I think sometimes... Uh, Christians will debate this verse or this moment uh, and they'll, they'll ask whether Satan could really deliver on this promise. 
And, and I think that debate is, is really asking the wrong kind of questions. Because the moment we begin to entertain whether Satan can deliver on any promise, we're already giving him too much ground. Anytime. And then finally, number three, the devil tempts Jesus with protection. Takes him to the top of the temple and he says, if you are the son of God, prove it. Throw yourself down from here. He says, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on, or on their hands, uh, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus just simply says, it said, don't test my father. Just don't do it. Don't put him to the test. And this is an interesting ploy as Satan himself now begins to use scripture. And now what's, what's amazing about it is that in this attempt, he may use the right verses, but he uses them out of context. Because God's word, uh, he, he twists God's word into an occasion not to trust God, but to test God. And, and if you go back to Psalm 91, I'm about to read it to you. But Psalm 91 is what Satan kind of plucks a few verses from. Uh, and, and I think Psalm 91 really should be memorized uh, by, by all of us. Um, as a reminder of God's promises to, to his people, because the ploy of Satan here is to twist these verses while ignoring the context of, of the psalm. Because here we have a psalm to treasure in our hearts about God's refuge and how he is our fortress. And, and just listen to it. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and it's a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. It says you will, you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Verse 9, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague uh, come near your tent. And this is what Satan pit plucks out. Okay, So everything we've been talking about, then he plucks two verses out. And he says this, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And now here's what's amazing, is he just stops there. And I think there's a reason why. Because I think he knows the next verse. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Hmm. Interesting. Like Satan knows it, but he's like, ah, uh, maybe. And I think he does a ploy that a lot of us do when we want a little bit of Jesus, but we still want a lot of the world. Right? Don't act like you don't sharpen your Bible out. You don't spiritually just block out that verse that says very plainly, hey, this is a bad idea. And you're like, well, is it? All right, focus now. 
because he holds fast to me in love, the psalmist says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And so in this moment when Satan says, hey, I'm going to take two verses. Uh, let's take Psalm 91, these two verses. What he does is he ignores all the other promises of it. And they far outweigh all of the promises of God, far outweigh any just whisper of the offerings of Satan. And this is the amazing part, that Satan attempts to use this psalm as a weapon, and the Father will use it to remain true to his word, because in his own time, and in a way that glorifies the Father, Jesus receives everything that Satan tempts him with. Every single thing. Jesus would miraculously produce bread for the hungry masses. Right? Jesus would attain all authority and all splendor in heaven and on earth through the cross and the resurrection. He will receive the service and the worship of heaven's angels as he rules at the Father's right hand. Guys, one of the best ways to fight temptations is to realize that we may receive what tempts us in a holy way if we will just wait on the Lord. If we will just stop listening to the temptations of the enemy. And you say, well, that's not happening fast enough. And what I'm telling you is you are a horrible judge of the pace of your life. Let's start wrapping this up. So here's, here's what typically happens when a guy like me teaches a passage like this. A right, guy like me will, will talk and we'll walk through the temptations and, and we'll be we'll point out that when Jesus responds, every time he responds with standing on God's word and 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 if we will just hide God's word in our hearts, we won't sin against God. So that's that's Psalm one nineteen, right? Verse eleven. And that's true. That's true that, that, that guys like me will say that, that we are to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And, and now the issue is that no human boxing Satan is likely to be as effective as Jesus is in these words. That, that if, if Satan would try to twist the scripture, to try to twist the Lord's heart and mind, then, then you know he will try it with us. And so resisting temptation cannot merely be a matter of take two Bible verses and call me in the morning. It can't be. Now, I'm not, I'm not hear me, I've got to be very careful with how I say this because I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not, I'm not saying that treasuring and hiding the word is not important because it vitally is. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that treasuring and hiding your words are important when it comes to the temptations of the flesh and really the temptations of, of the devil because they are. I just don't know if they are the primary path for avoiding temptation. I don't. In fact, I think the question is, why is this text given to us? Is it so that we can trust in God's word or we, we may trust in God's son? Which becomes primary here, okay? And so trusting God's word, I think, in this case is an important 
in a vital secondary application. This, this Jesus' perfect interpretation and his obedience to God's word reveals that he is God's true son. And if he's truthful about that, then everything else that he says is truthful. Everything that God has said about him is truthful. So, so our primary application, some of you are like, man, we got one more blank. We'll get to it, bro. Right? Our primary application is this. Jesus is God's son. Trust him. Trust him. That the Lord endured temptation in our place. In, so in our temptation, we must flee to Christ. He conquered our adversary. The son stands in our place to defeat the temptation that often defeats us. So, so he does not do this and say, okay, now that I've shown you to do it, just do it, good luck, and leave us. He doesn't. In fact, as Jesus endures this temptation, he reveals how he's our great high priest. In fact, it says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, that it teaches us that he has been tempted in every way and yet without sin. And so right now, in this very moment, Jesus is doing, if you are found in him, he is doing two incredible, two incredible things. He intercedes for us, and he advocates for us. So the best way to understand that, when he intercedes for us, what it does, sin put, shut the door of the throne room of grace. Like we could not enter into God's presence because the door was shut. And so when Jesus intercedes for us, what he does is he stands and he holds this door open. And he says, you can come on in. In fact, the word, the word, the way it describes it says, because of him, we can enter this throne room of grace with confidence that we will be heard and that we are known that God loves us. And God's constantly just, or Jesus is just constantly holding this door. And he says, come on in, come on in, come on in, come on in. And then when we do sin, he advocates for us. We start to walk up to God to tell him what we did and what Jesus does by his just graceful obedience to the Father. He stands in front and he says, what they have done, let me bear it. So he goes to the Father and he says, they've, they've messed up, but let me, let me bear that. So I told you earlier, when the Father looks at the Son, when the Father looks at us, and if we are in Christ, He sees the Son. This is all great news for us. So He intercedes for us, and He reigns in the heavens as a priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, and, and He makes it possible for us to approach this throne room of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and we may find grace to help us in our time of need. Our Lord did not endure this so that we would have a model to follow. He did this so that we would have mercy when we fail. So Christ delivers us and, and not simply intercedes, but again, he advocates. And so the ultimate issue here is whether Jesus is the Son of God. And that's why Satan keeps coming at him this way. Satan, Satan's real aim is to destroy Jesus' sonship so that he might destroy our salvation. For if Jesus were to fall in any of these temptations, we could not 
be the sinless sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. So Satan unleashes the most relentless demonic assault when Jesus remains faithful. He remains faithful to his word. He remains faithful to his father. And I think here what we have is the God-man who passes the test that Adam and Eve failed. He survives temptation in the wilderness when Israel failed in the Exodus. He passes the test that we have failed. And in doing so, he becomes our ever-present help in time of need and temptation. Every single time. So this means that that in our hear me when I say this, in our temptation, our best strategy is to run to Jesus. Every single time. That he is our strength, he is our shield, he is our high priest who prays and intercedes for us. He is our victory, he is our confidence. However well we know the word, let us not begin to think we know it so well that we don't need to first flee to Jesus who has overcome the tempter on our behalf as the true Son of God. That's what we get to do. Our desire this week is to love God by... So we wrap up. Let me make a couple things available to you. If you've never given your heart to Jesus, we believe there's no way to have peace. There's no way to have peace with yourself. There's really no way to have peace with people. There's really no way to have peace with God. And the Father says, I send the Son so I can redeem my people. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart, we would love to talk with you about that. We would love to pray with you. If you need prayer today, we want to pray with you. We'll have some people over on this side. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and we thank you for your kindness. And I pray that we would be able to see your son so clearly that he would be the place that we flee to. That all of our satisfaction would be in his embrace. All of our joy would be found in his embrace. That, Father, you would give us a bitter taste for the sins of the world, but really just the sins in our own hearts and the temptations of our own hearts. Let us see clearly how empty all of those temptations are. Father, we thank you that you stress time and time again how important it is that Christ is your son. We thank you for the love that's displayed. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If Satan asks you if you are the Son of God, he tries to tempt you. He uses all the tricks that he has. We get to look at it and say, because of our redemption, we know the answer to that question. So now we shout it. We scream it from the mountains. We tell it to the masses. And he is God. Let's sing that tune.
guys have a blessed week. You are dismissed.